Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Today I'm joined by Nikki Gilbert. Nikki provides private eating disorder treatment, supervision to eating disorder clinicians and trains clinicians in the Maudsley Mantra approach. Nikki joins us today to discuss the Maudsley approach and how her experience of working in eating disorders has shaped her role as a clinician today. Hello Nikki. Hello Hannah. How are you doing today? I'm, I'm doing um, well, thank you. Just really enjoying a bit of human contact in the middle of my day. <laughs> it's nice, isn't different. it? It's speaking really to nice. people. Yes, yeah. And speaking to you, because I think we've, um, we tried to make this happen. Um, was it more than a year ago, maybe? And, um, I actually think it was because I have, so I'm now in a different job. But when we spoke, I wasn't at my last job. I was at my job before that. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's at least at least eight nine months ago nine. Months. So yeah, yeah, lots been going on. It's been kind of yeah, lots of adjusting. So what have adjustment? What are the adjustments that have kind of been going on for you? Is that in terms of job or? Yeah, so I've um, made a bit of a change as well in terms of um, kind of my uh, work um, and kind of yeah I had to sort of um adjust a little bit around that I think lots of people um have had to do some some changing in order to sort of adapt to um all of the difficult things that have happened in the last few years really um but yeah it's kind of uh, working out what we need what the balance needs to look like um and kind of I suppose for me a bit of adjusting around the fact that probably I went into my sort of clinical job because I love human contact and I like hanging out with colleagues and things um but lots of things sort of change in terms of more remote delivery um so from a clinician point of view actually sort of the the kind of I suppose it's realizing how much I used to enjoy the little chit chat even like weirdly like the commute to work and sometimes I would car share so like the chatter you have in all of those different arenas um that suddenly shifted quickly overnight with COVID didn't it and um so I'm now noticing what's missing and thinking about how to rebuild that in in other ways as well um as well as doing the things that I I love doing and I know I can do um so yeah I, I think I can really resonate to to that I because when I started like full time working um we were in the middle of the pandemic so it was mm-hmm. it was like I took the job and it was remote working because of the pandemic. And then I then got offered another job. And that was just when we all started going back into the office. But because I had only ever known working remotely, I was like, oh, I, I can work from home. That'll be fine. Um, and then once everybody then started going back to work, I started to think, hmm, I feel like there are things I'm missing because like, you know, my boyfriend would be like, oh, no, I want to go into the office. And I'd be like, why would you want to go in? Um, <laughs> and then, you know, this week, this, I've been there for, what, nine days now. But um, actually, all those things you were just saying, you know, like that commute to work, I, I just cycle. But it's so mm. nice to have that break from my home to the office. Yeah. 
yeah. to kind of clear my head and then you know chatting to people in the coffee room going for lunch together like it's tiny little things that I think you wouldn't think make an impact but actually really yeah. do have an impact on you, you yeah you take them for granted don't you mm. and I, I really noticed I remember in the middle of the pandemic people were talking about the things they missed the most and I think <laughs> like um I don't want to say I'm old but like some of the younger guys younger people were talking about sort of going out and going to pubs and stuff and going um and I obviously missed that but I'm also a single parent and all I wanted in the pandemic was another parent to come have a cup of tea with me in a room while our children were playing so I didn't have yeah. to think about them for a minute and a bit of like a break in the day so yeah it's it's even little moments like that I was I was kind of at some points missing just randomly going to the park and talking to strangers yeah <laughs> <That> was... <laughs> just going to the shop and chatting to somebody um yeah. or for me I go to the gym and I've built up quite a strong like community of friends but kind of just speaking yeah. to somebody new in the gym like yeah. I, th- I don't think you realize how much those like small interactions kind of play a role in just your day-to-day like happiness yeah definitely so it's just starting to build those things back in gently in a way that um kind of works um for us as well because I guess hearing your story it's quite full-on starting a new job anyway you you know and building those new relationships when Mm. there'll be people in the workplace that know each other already and yeah yeah it's a lot to get used to yeah and then I did actually it's funny um I went for lunch with some colleagues who the next my team's quite small um but there's a lot of PhD students so they like all know each other across across the campus and we sat for lunch and they were like really getting on and chatting and I just sat there thinking oh I don't know these people like they get on so well and then they came home my boyfriend was like how have how how many times have you met them I was like oh one lunch and he was like and they probably had lunch together for months and you're sad because you didn't click with them and I was like yeah I should probably give it another try <laughs> Yeah. And I think that's the other thing. It's going to take time as well, because you're not going to be going in maybe quite as much as you would have done in normal times yeah. as well. So all of that stuff gets all spread out and we're left in our heads way too much because there's too much yeah. remote stuff going on. Um, so, yeah, it does make it all quite challenging. But we're growing, we're developing. <laughs> it's just a, another hurdle that we all have to, yeah. to work with. Um, but... I'm very excited to speak to you about mantra. Um, I have never, you know, actually done it myself, but I did learn about it quite a lot at uni. Um, So I know some elements, but kind of not as much detail as I'd like to. Um, So I guess for those listening, would you mind just kind of giving us an overview of what mantra is and kind of what the aims are behind it? I will do my best, Hannah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so it is um, a model of treatment so um, and it's a cognitive interpersonal um, therapy um, and I suppose yeah it's it's kind of um, specifically for individuals with anorexia nervosa or um, an eating disorder that would m- more resemble that um, and the kind of I suppose the, the the unique part of mantra is that it has been sort of developed specifically for those individuals. Um, so whereas something like CBT is more of a model that has then sort of been hung on all kinds of different difficulties. Um, I think that the team um, developing mantra um, did that kind of uh, 
sort of iterative process around thinking about research findings, really thinking about patient experiences and preferences and integrating the clinical sort of skills and knowledge of the clinicians to, to develop a model um, that would kind of um, fit um, the needs of those individuals um, as much as, as, as is possible. And I guess there, what's lovely about that the team, the gang of people, that, um, all the different people that have been involved is that there is a real understanding that it's a work in progress as well. Mm. So, it, you know, it's continually, um, you know, we've, there's something that works, but there is always room to develop and improve these things too. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's, it, was, it was made to be sort of like a standalone therapy so that people could get on with their lives as well. So a little bit like CBT or, you know, other kinds of models. Um, the kind of the, the thinking as well was around making sure that it would work or be useful for people with a really broad range of um, severity. So those who've had their illness for a really long time and those that maybe um, haven't had it for quite, quite as long. Also sort of space within the model to really think about comorbidity, which is when someone's got more than one thing um, going on, which is so usual um, for people with eating related difficulties. So you know, that might be sort of depression, anxiety, um, or kind of more personality sort of difficulties, um, kind of all kinds of things, actually. It's got, got, got space for that, which is really handy um, as a clinician and also for, for, for people working through it. Um, I think the other part that was obviously really important was making sure people could be safe and risk monitored as they were working through the therapy. So a therapy that sort of sits on top of um, specialist expertise, so eating disorder expertise. So the clinicians, what can be really hard when you're clinicianing your training is this, this idea that you've got to kind of start again, but their, their foundational skills of kind of risk monitoring, good clinical practice, don't go anywhere. You just sort of add the extra layer of the, the mantra um, therapy um, into the mix to give it like give, give it the framework to help them. And also, I think the other really important thing in terms of anorexia treatment was the need to um, involve as much as possible um, loved ones and, um, you know, within the model. And I think that's part of why it's called an interpersonal, why, why it's thought about as a, as a bit of an interpersonal model. Um, I think probably that, um, I think it's Ari Kishmet that talks about it as being a bit of a magpie therapy. And that's <laughs> what's really lovely about it too. So I think, it's a it's really got the the kind of the needs of the individual at the heart of it so it's like let's not get tied up with like um you know I, I suppose what it was was let's go around and find all the things that we know work and try and bring them into like magpies do the, all the shiny bits bring them in together and try and develop a model that's going to work as best as we can um for the individuals that, that need it mm. um so it's a kind of it is a workbook, so it's, it's manualized, which is, you know, really helpful in terms of keeping um, the, the clinician and the individual who are like the, the team, obviously working through their difficulties together, um, to keep you with a bit of a framework so that you don't completely drift off course. Um, but what's really nice about it too is it's, um, it's not really sort of rigid and prescriptive in terms of like, you know, you have to tick every single box and you have to fill in all the all the pages. And in fact, I get really worried if someone's um, kind of approaching it like that. And that, you know, that might suggest that we need to think about, or, you know, maybe um, sort of perfectionism's got in the way here. We need to kind of really maybe help you do it in a less 
um, less full-on um, way. Um, so yeah, so it's it's the loveliness of approach that can be used quite flexibly. Um, but there are some sort of ground rules that keep you know the clinician and the person on track, which is about you know good clinical skills, um, good practice in terms of. Um, sort of making sure risk is always on the, on the map. So, um, and, um, you know, you're always checking in about where someone's at in terms of their physical well-being, as well as sort of thinking about the, the kind of the, the cognitive stuff and the, the interpersonal stuff. Um, and that you can kind of dip in and out of, um, you know, all the other bits around nutrition and involving other people too. So um, is it kind of, in terms of the like structure I'm trying to kind of piece it all together so is it yeah. um is this something like the workbook is this something that the um I don't know what you call them patients I, I don't know yeah um do they do this on their own at home is it like a reflective practice or is it something that you work through with a therapist or how is oh. the structure approached um yeah let's so I suppose a typical package, treatment package would be, um, so 20 individual sessions. And, um, and in addition, you can have extra sessions with loved ones. So a couple of extra sessions and the person themselves can decide when on the journey, those, it would make sense to, to have those. Um, extra sessions with dietitians as well, if you're working in a service with dietitians, um, which hopefully lots of people are um and also follow-up sessions so those are sessions you put at the end to I, like once I always think about it as, as like you're giving skills away to the individual you're you're hoping that they can like run um off the edge of the cliff and start flying um but it's also really nice to have almost like um, a safety net so you you know the follow-ups you can between the two of you work out where to space them so it might be a month after they've finished or um you know whatever feels comfortable and they feel quite different from the therapy sessions in that they're just um the person will be more in the driving seat probably and letting you know how they're navigating maybe telling you about a few slips but also kind of how they might have um got themselves back back on track and stuff so that and and also I suppose there's an understanding that this there would be 30 sessions if someone comes with with more uh, more of a journey ahead of them so those would be individuals maybe with um, um, sort of more lower BMI sort of higher risk type presentations um, so the kind of rule of fun, fun and you know it's, it would be a um, kind of more of a under 15 type range in terms of that mm -hmm. but um, but yeah you know there's an understanding that I suppose different um, you can catch people or people can come in at different points in their recovery journey so there might need to be a little bit more kind of support for longer for some people and less so for others and um so there's that's that's where the flex can come in too it's really hard to step away from anorexia without a bit of a helping hand um so but I think it's lovely the book what's what's lovely about the book is that the person will have their own copy so you'll, you'll have a copy as a clinician the person will have their copy and it sort of uh takes the pressure off a bit it, well, it helps with that flexibility in that you can dip into the bits that make the most sense 
for the person so you can really discuss together which bits that you you need to go into in more detail mm. um, and at what points um which allows some lovely freedom in terms of the way the treatment's delivered but also it can take the pressure off for some people where they feel like they've got to get it all sorted now in that they've got this book and actually you know it might be that even towards the end of the active part of treatment they can still have the book to look in look at dip back into maybe work at some of the other bits that felt less relevant but that they'd still like to look at mm. so there's something lovely about using it like that I always think in the actual face-to-face -face sessions um you try and bring it as light alive as much as possible so there might be some sessions where you work through some worksheets together but try not try I, I try not to do that um as much because the person can do that a little bit outside so you can do the homework tasks outside which can be actually some of it is a lot of letter writing in Manchester which is lovely so that's a really good way to sort of play around with expressing emotions especially if you haven't been able to or um you know because anorexia has been sort of putting a lid on all of that um as a first step and then maybe in session you you kind of hear that the letters together and you talk about the emotions that they've brought up and things like that so that's how a clinician might um sort of use the book if that makes sense and and support the person to use the book and you probably have a little radar out for, for someone that's filling in the book a bit too perfectly um <laughs> so I always think about that as um you know almost being in an intellectualized sort of place or mode where they're not necessarily allowing the therapy to sink into their sort of heart and soul so a kind of you know maybe chatting that through together once you've got a really good relationship that you can kind of you know talk about those kinds of things but sort of say look how can we make sure it's not just you sort of pleasing mm. me as a clinician and, and that we're actually doing sort of stuff that's really going to re resonate for you and be meaningful for you mm. if that makes sense yeah um that was one thing I I like that's one vivid memory I have from when we had a lecture about mantra was um one the letters of like anorexia my friend and anorexia my enemy and then yeah. the other was um they they'd put pictures up of the vicious flower and so yeah. many people had like the writing was perfectly written it's almost typed and had been colored in perfectly um and I remember the lecturer there saying you know you look at this and you can see those perfectionistic tendencies um but then I guess that is like another element to work through so even if that does come up then it you know it's a good example of what needs to be worked on with the with the patient yeah it's lovely you can experiment with it so um I think that's that's it if, you, if you're noticing things being perfect mm. you can set little experiments up like right okay um can you sort of summarize your flower now in you know 10 minutes um or you know that might be the homework task or kind of yeah um I suppose I really help I know it's really hard because I I can hold the book up to show you Hannah but it's this kind of big textbook and I don't know if, if you're like me like even I've got it in my head don't scribble in textbooks it's not what you do so, <laughs> so it's kind of really I mean that's quite a fun thing to sort mm. of work with someone around is to try and help them make it their own and mm. and sort of scribble a bit and even I've started like highlighting mine and making sure I'm modeling that too to kind yeah. of um, really break those rules that you might have around um kind of how to do things mm. um and the letter writing is lovely so there's a 
an earlier part in the the model which is around helping someone sort of think about um the kind of motivation and how um where they are in terms of anorexia um being a sort of um a friend and being an enemy and those that letter writing is really powerful there's also letter writing involved in when you've got a map like a formulation for someone then you can write them a formulation letter that sort of summarizes that which is like cat so I don't, I don't know if people listening so there's a um psychological therapy called cat and I think they borrowed the letter writing parts of of cat for that and there's there's letters in terms of the ending in terms of the the therapist would write to the person and they'd write to the therapist to sort of capture mm. the, the journey and what they've like witnessed along the way yeah. um and then lots of little exercises all the way through if, if and I suppose that's the other tailoring bit if if that is a particularly helpful way of working for the person that you're you're working with then you, you'd weave more of those kinds of exercises in as you go mm. Yeah, I think that's one thing that I kind of liked the sound about it so much. You know, like you said, you have the the participant where we all had their own copy, and mm. I think you know that would be such a great tool throughout recovery, but also after recovery as well. Because I think sometimes, yeah. you know, you may have a slip, and it's it's not kind of mm. you're not going back to square one, but it can feel like you know things have fallen a little bit, and actually to reflect on you know, maybe that's where I was before, or this is how I got up from a situation like this before again. Um, Cause like you said, you know, it's 20 or 30 sessions, but actually that work, it doesn't just have to be in those sessions. You you can carry that book with you um, totally. forever. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So it's like a transition object. It's mm. really lovely in that way. And people do talk about how they, they go back to it. Um, and um yeah and I think that's also really supportive for the clinician as well because you're you then don't you know you 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 can then be in a real shared journey with the person but also be in that position where you're there for a small part of their journey um you know and your role really is to give your skills away like so you get you know in the earliest stages of therapy um it might be that the clinician's taking more of a lead and guiding more um but actually, you know, when the person's sort of finding their momentum, it's really appropriate as a clinician to sort of step a little bit back and let them sort of take more and more of the lead um, and sort of tell you more about which bits they, they need to, to dip into and which bits feel like, you know, they don't need quite as much work around and stuff. Um, so, yeah, it's helpful for, for, for both parties, mm. I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I wanted to ask, um, because you said that there's like, you know, a level of flexibility and you can kind of dip into dip into things that feel more relevant. Are there kind of particular themes in the workbook to work on or is, you know, how does that kind of work going through it? Yeah. So, yeah, kind of um, there are some core bits that you would work through with somebody. Um, and um, so I think um you've got a kind of um I suppose that the, probably the easiest way to talk about it is to think about the um the flower that you described that you started to introduce people to um because I suppose that's what pulls um the book together and helps you to work out where to go with somebody um so that's the kind of I suppose the formulation part of things but I sort of think about a bit, bit of a roadmap of, of, mm. of what's keeping things going um and it comes out of a kind of a bit of a mismatch so it's a real kind of understanding that 
actually for any of us um we've all got traits and personality um elements that make us vulnerable um we've all got strengths as well and actually sometimes our traits and personality um factors can be turned into strengths but actually when anorexia comes along they get they get turned towards anorexia um and then we've got supportive people and things in our environment and we've got events and challenges that sort of shape our worldview and really shake us up and problems come around whether it's anorexia or something else where there's a mismatch um in that balance of the four things so when you know the events and stuff are, are, are bigger than our supports at, at the time and our strengths at the time and so when that mismatch happens um it's an opportunity for anorexia to get its grips in so it's kind of that real understanding that it's kind of a really tough um call that 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 the kind of that this sort of seductive solution really um because anorexia does, when it first comes around, it, it, it does solve lots of, of, of problems, but it's also got some incredible downsides and it can quite quickly get into quite reinforcing sort of vicious loops. So the kind of the four big sort of reinforcing loops um, that, the, that the models sort of centered around are um, to do with anorexia being valuable, valued by the person in some way. Um, so that might be that it's sort of taken on more of their identity. They've begun to lose who they are or you not have the space to build up who they are. So it becomes who they are um, or that it serves sort of positive functions. So um, and that might be about sort of standing out or it might be about feeling safe. But, it you know, it will be specific for the person. Um, then second sort of loop is around thinking style and um, how actually when any of us are starving and the starved state can really exacerbate vulnerabilities in thinking as well. So um, you get much more drawn into the detail. So it's much harder to think about the bigger picture. So it's, it's really hard to sort of think about where you wanna be and who you, you know, who you wanna be and what you wanna do next, which really serves anorexia well. So it gets you pulled right, right into the detail and less flexible when you're when you're starving so you can't sort of so more more vulnerable to things like black and white thinking and maybe perfectionism and some of that stuff which which will you know it's that's quite vicious it's quite a trap mm -hmm. um then there's a social and emotional part um where um you can i suppose anorexia can put a lid or freeze emotions for people um and that means you just don't have the chance to sort of build up all sorts of other ways to think and, and well to, to manage emotion think about what you need around that um and also in terms of relationships it can be quite isolating like you know that friend enemy letter sometimes when anorexia comes in it it does everything for somebody and that means that it's it, 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 it there's less space to build up those friendships and, and do all those other things um, and then the, the other element is around how others, how our loved ones and the people that care can um, inadvertently sort of reinforce anorexia too. Um, and that can be around emotional distress. So um, it's really, really hard. Um, can't imagine it, but to, to, to have someone that you're living with um, sort of struggle and to witness, it's quite visual, isn't it? It's sort of witness, witness the, the staff state. Um, and also the kind of the very high sort of risk um, 
And so, you know, it's, and, you know, family members don't have the kind of support and supervision that clinicians might have, you know, that they're with it all the time with the person, all the time with the distress, all the time. So it's really understandable that they would be emotional. Um, and that's where the sort of Janet Treasure's got some lovely animal metaphors that help with that. But also it's quite difficult. So if you if you've got a very worried um, mom or um, you know who's, who's kind of a bit all over the place because it's really scary, then actually if you're the person with anorexia, then it can set up tricky loops around. Okay, I'm really upsetting mom now. I need to stop telling her stuff and I need to sort of shut myself away. Um, so so it's kind of making sense of the understandable emotional reactions, but also how that can keep things stuck um or also the behavioral reactions that can keep things stuck too so again with those animals I think it's really human uh, when someone's in distress to want to look after them fix it kind of maybe wrap your arms around them and there's a kangaroo a metaphor around that um, but if you put someone in your pouch you're not gonna help them to build up their own skills um, so you know it's it's also sort sort of before all of the steps have been formed around the person kind of being linked into service or a clinician, loved ones are the first couple of course. So they're just doing the best they can. So some of these patterns just, they've just been like basic survival as a little family system. Um, so it's then about helping that family system sort of step out of some of these patterns and into their more kind of flourishing patterns more more being mother daughter if that's if that's the relationship or, um and starting to relax and trust that the professionals and the person themselves are beginning to take the steps that they need to take mm. and then the final loop is around um anything else <laughs> another loop and I suppose you just when you're working with someone you just think like, have, have, is everything been captured or actually is there something additional we need to think about here that's also keeping things going and making things extra hard um so that's how the treatment is sort of um uh ordered I think before you get to the formulation bit there's a couple of foundation bits which are around um sort of getting started and the motivation type stuff and really getting to know someone and to understand kind of the force of their anorexia at that point in time so working out there the pulls and pushes um so some people you know that friend enemy letter is super helpful and there's lots of exercises around that too um to get there um and it's a very telling exercise as well so you know if some someone might find it very easy to write to the anorexia as an enemy um then it's a real sign that they're they're kind of a bit they're, they're coming through a bit of a journey and they're um they're starting to see that it's not as helpful maybe but sometimes people find it really difficult and and kind of the the, the friend enemy comes first and, and sometimes the the enemy letter isn't even written and I'll come to the session and it will feel like they're betraying their friend by talking about that stuff um but those are incredibly helpful conversations to have and they really um give you more of a sense as a clinician and as the person themselves about where they're at with their readiness and motivation mm. um and there's a a section all on nutrition as well so um 
I guess the the kind of the broad um, sequence um, that a treatment might look like is assessing and sort of and then uh, getting to understand that motivation to so doing the working change stuff maybe sort of that might also involve potentially touching base with carers and loved ones um, there's then you'd sort of be doing sort of the nutrition bits as well and moving towards formulating you plan your treatment based on your formulation so you think as you map those things out with someone you might start to have a real sense of which of those four areas are particularly tricky for somebody and those might well be the areas you go deeper into mm. um, and um, so you there's change modules orientated all around each of those areas um, with lots of exercises to help someone sort of work through that sort of stuff um, and then towards the end you'd be working on building up a new identity or or, or refinding someone's identity on, in amongst all of this and helping them with sort of relapse prevention mm. um, but what's nice about mantra is yeah there aren't the rules around right you have to do this number of sessions on nutrition and this number of sessions on you know uh, working on the emotion and social mind bit you can talk with your person about the 20 sessions um, and, I, and I would always sort of number them. So you're always having those kinds of conversations mm. and thinking about, okay, what makes sense to work on at this point? Um, and what's nice about the book again is as a clinician, you don't have to be as prepared as long as you know the book. Mm. Um, so if your person comes in and, you know, you might have had a plan to follow um, a certain, you know, follow an, an exercise the next week but actually if your person comes in and says uh you know uh stuff's come up in in a kind of you know in a, an emotion you know, emotional um stuff you, you can flip to the emotion social mind bit and you know change your change your plans a little yeah. um to tailor it better for that person which which is cool I think that's one thing that like I was going to ask about was kind of if there's got if there is a structure that you have to follow sort of with the themes and stuff and you've made that plan at the start you know what if somebody comes in one day and they're like I had this experience and it was really difficult and I want to talk about that but I guess like you've just said if you can have it so that you know there's a vague structure of things that you want to cover but actually if things do come up that are unexpected or you know very present for somebody that is equally as important I would say to be able to go through so I think having the sort of idea of things and then being able to sort of manipulate it as you go through sounds really good it's really helpful and I think it's um I suppose if you need to uh, well you know clinicians do need to tailor and the individuals themselves need to tailor it um if things are more risky and um so it's yeah it, it's helpful to be able to have a guide and a plan and a direction but also be able to have that flex so that you're responding mm -hmm. really appropriately and clinically um in terms of priorities um and that's what it allows you to to sort of focus the treatment mm -hmm. um around some of those variables um around you know also around motivation because um that it, it's really usual for motivation to sort of fluctuate um, for any human beings but mm. certainly when anorexia is in in the mix it's quite a powerful force so you know there can be points in the journey where it gets strong and mm. um that needs to be thought about and um, sometimes kind of almost having the ability to sort of 
dip back towards the motivation section if you needed to mm. for people is useful yeah um again also with risk um having the nutrition section mm-hmm. you know there um even at a slightly different point in the journey if someone suddenly has a week and they're really struggling um or if you know if they've actually sometimes if you've been physically ill it can be difficult you know so to then get back on track so it might be you know it's just helpful that you can weave back to um to sections and also in an, in a more hopeful way actually there's something really so towards the end of the mansion manual there's a flourishing flower um I can't remember if I'm just saying that right a virtuous farming of health and happiness so that mm-hmm. is like the not the opposite but like yeah maybe um a kind of hopeful version of the the maintenance one mm-hmm. where you'd hope someone was moving towards and actually what's been really lovely is actually sometimes um if you're catching someone at a slightly different point in their journey they might already have built up some of those petals um so sort of doing the formulation bit can be quite hardcore like you're basically that I talk about it's like you're opening a cupboard that someone's maybe stuffed all of these complicated things into the cupboard you have to get them all out understand them all kind of really make sense of it and you know it's kind of like oh you've got kind of this hot like lots and lots of loops that all keep things going which is quite big to look at and you have to be quite brave to look at that and it can leave people feeling like whoa okay there's a lot here to work on so it can be quite nice to sort of know that there's a, a kind of a, a virtuous version of that 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 you can also build up alongside and that might already have been being built up you know it's not a kind of uh linear thing it's, it's kind of quite messy but like, like in a good way um yeah so so yeah I, I kind of I, I really like it like that, that you've got much more of an ability to tailor a, according to sort of an individual's needs, really, and build sort of hope in there as well. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, I think um, as you were just kind of talking there, I was just thinking about what that hope being really important, because I think potentially, you know, maybe if somebody came for treatment, I guess I'm talking from my perspective here from when I went for treatment was I didn't realize how entangled I was and my life my family's life was into the eating disorder um so I think then you know to start to unpack all of that and to realize on both sides to realize the benefits yeah again the benefits that you perceive from the eating disorder and then the kind of negatives that you perceive and to think about the impact that that's having I think that would be really quite like wow like that's quite mm. overwhelming and I'm you know I'm now living in in this body and I feel like I'm just living for my eating disorder so actually having that hope of what the future mm. can hold and how you can work towards not being entangled in the eating disorder I think yeah that sounds like something mm. that would be really important to discuss. So that's where the formulation letter comes in actually as well so um you know and that's your job as a clinician a little bit as well to hold the hope and 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 be there along along the journey um but I think yeah one of the things about the letter is that you you're not just mapping out because because anyone you know you can do that they can you know, draw a flower about what's keeping things stuck mm-hmm. but you're also bringing in all that you've seen all of the strengths that that person's shown you and and you've witnessed and they've talked about um 
and then um, kind of, you know, you're hearing, you're understanding how anorexia came about and it made, it made sense, you know, they were just doing the best they could at that time. Um, and you're affirming that marathon as well. And that point of like, wow, by the time someone gets to formulation, it's like they've been so brave and they've shared and opened up and helped you understand a lot. But now you've got that, and now that's now we we've got work to do in terms of sort of carrying on, and that's at the point where you almost, if you're thinking about it, you'd almost want to let someone rest. Um, but actually, that's the point where there's there's a bit of a like, let's breathe and and have a bit of a rest, but we also need to keep mm-hmm. pushing through because it's that's it's a hard it's yeah it's I suppose yeah I don't know why I do this job because it's. <laughs> You were actually asking someone to, to be really incredibly uncomfortable in, mm. in the short term in order to get to a, a better place. And yeah. so you really do have to hold the hope for them mm. and um, map that journey with them out to sort of say, actually, you know, it's going to be worth it, but it's, mm. it, it is going to be uncomfortable too. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's almost that like no days off approach, which I would yeah. normally um I wouldn't normally be a fan of a no day off approach but I think in eating disorder recovery unfortunately it is because as I've you know found as soon as you give a little bit back it's you know you've done one thing and it feels like you've done a thousand um mm. but that is you know like you said that to have that motivation all the time to keep doing that to keep making the right decision that's really tiring and it's hard it's really exhausting and sometimes I think about it like um like climbing, climbing up a mountain and sometimes people do need to sidestep for a bit mm. as well sometimes you can really see how exhausting it is and how maybe the anorexia has been an incredible bully like mm. in you know or, or suddenly come back more powerfully and actually they just need to hold things steady and that's good enough and you can see that's a fight in itself so that they've got enough to then keep pushing up as well um and like yeah there's all kinds of analogies that I use or we use to help <laughs> with all of that stuff they're also countering the idea of perfect recovery. It's really, really important mm-hmm. and not expecting yeah. sort of neat lines in terms of what's going on, mm-hmm. like really knowing sort of more authentic stuff around, you know, hearing someone struggle and hearing how they're learning. Um, that's what that's what gives me more kind of confidence, I suppose, that that things are going in a, in a meaningful direction. Yeah. um I think so I don't know where it comes from but I always think about the recovery being like the coast of South America it's really <laughs> and sometimes you can be going backwards but you're still learning mm-hmm. um I think I think about South America because I went traveling there I think, but, <laughs> but it is a bit like you know it's a really funny little shape isn't it um but that's more I suppose that would give me more calmness if that's what someone's journey looked like because actually as a clinician your job's to be there at the hardest point of the journey so that when things are moving in a smoother direction, you know, they've got more, more of the tools and, and they wouldn't necessarily need so much of a guide anymore. Maybe they've got their own inner guide um, or enough of an inner guide um, to take things forward. Yeah. Um, so that's, I suppose, sometimes it is about socialising people to, to that as well. That, yeah, it's, it's not a fun thing to be socialising someone to, yeah. I think. But, um, but yeah, it can be... Um, yeah it's 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 hard work and um, stepping out of this stuff yeah I think that's such an important thing to note though and I, th- I feel like a broken record because I think I say it on the podcast all the time but like you said recovery isn't linear and I think yeah. often 
you know especially in anorexia if if there are those perfectionistic tendencies the goal can be that perfect recovery of going for cake with friends and you know having ice cream every day and all of that and you know some people's recovery will look like that but equally not everybody's will and and you know it's not going to be brilliant a brilliant ride the whole time you might have some step backs but actually like if I reflect on my own journey the times the biggest step backs are when I've learned the most so yeah. and even though they're so incredibly uncomfortable like you said recovery isn't comfortable so actually it's, it's recognizing those step backs and thinking hmm I'm not I don't think I'm in a great place here how can what can I do now for myself with the tools that I've learned along the way um so yeah I think definitely trying to just have the bigger picture in mind which obviously with that isn't that something as well that um, I'm sure that was in mantra or something like the very detailed focused rather than seeing the bigger picture yeah so it's harder so that's that's also why um and the star state sort of exacerbates that so that's that's why it's so important to um get momentum around moving to a safer place with your nutrition because it really does sort of help to get to that bigger picture as well it's not just a simple cognitive thing um and you'd tie yourself in knots if you were trying to do that without improving nutrition as well but yeah you're right so there's kind of that um yeah helping someone see the bigger picture as they go um but like yeah I love you saying that out loud it's so hard um when you're in it though isn't it when um you know to really hold that in mind that I'm going to be proud of myself Mm yeah like down the line yeah it's not it's not good when it's happening and I and I guess as a clinician also to be the the um for those setbacks to be happening within treatment is is really useful because Mm. it's you know sometimes people just need someone to be you know to, to support the fact that that's happened as well and hear how hard that is before you can even get to a point of going what can I learn now um and I yeah I'm I'm I suppose if there's one thing I can do with people is it's to help them there rather than for them to be in those positions without a bit of support as well if that makes sense Um, it's funny actually because um I went back to therapy I don't think I don't know if I've really spoken about this on the podcast but I'm in a very good place now and it's something that I've kind of wanted to share and it feels relevant now but um I think I went back in October last year um and like I just I was being really like I was being an ass is what I was being I was just being just not a nice person um to myself to anybody and I sat in the therapy room and I was like I'm sick and tired of this I've put so much work in and now I'm back to where I'm at and I just turned to my therapist and I was like I'm just I'm just not getting better am I it's just not happening and um and she was like Hannah there is a reason that you are here sat in this room right now if you didn't want to get better you wouldn't be here um and you know said all this what I at the time thought was rubbish about you've made it before and you're very motivated and you need to find that again and now I look back and I'm like you were being so silly and so rude and everything in that session and I just had lost hope um but but now I'm kind of like I feel like from that situation to kind of where I was a year ago, even stronger, despite the fact that there's been like a lull in the middle. Um, Mm. But like you said, at the time, it's so difficult to remind yourself that things will get better because 
you do just think oh I'm here again like this is the fourth time round. how's how's it ever gonna kind of I can't see the wood from the trees but like yeah, yeah I, I I mean I still now I'm kind of like I don't know what I did to pull myself out again but something happened so yeah. and we need all the help you get when you dip into those mm. kinds of places and that's, I guess, thinking about the mantra bit is like whatever it takes to remind yeah. you that you've been in a different place before. Um, but also, I guess we all need reminders that life can throw curveballs, you know, and some people get way more curveballs than others as well. So it's not, you know, it's no judgment when people wobble. Um, and, you know, and sometimes you can pull yourself back on track based on historical experiences. You can remember what you did in therapy and that moves you in a better direction. Sometimes you need a little bit more of a helping hand and, you know, whatever it takes to get get out of there. Um, it's just not nice being there, though. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> that, that, no. That, 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 that the journey's bumpy. Like, I wish, mm. like, yeah, I wish journeys weren't so bumpy. And wish, yeah. yeah, it would be good, but you know it's unfortunately life isn't like that um I did have one question I wanted to ask you um and then I've got some questions from the listeners because we've been chatting for it's been so I don't know how it's gone so quickly it's flown um but I wanted to ask I guess you know eating disorders used to maybe still do for people not necessarily you know working in eating disorders have this rhetoric that it's females that have eating disorders do you think that kind of the vicious flower and I think did you call it the victorious flower the, 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 the <laughs> one at the end the yeah, happy flower victorious sounds brilliant yeah. <laughs> yeah. um I see flowers as quite feminine so my mm. I don't know I was thinking do you, is is mantra also appropriate for men with eating disorders or would you kind of steer them in a different direction definitely wouldn't steer them in a different direction I think the um it's really I never never thought about it like that in terms of the flowers um but I think it's really important um the flower comes from sort of um like there's a depression model that um Sterling Moray conceptualized which was a vicious flower of depression like Mm -hmm. and and it's quite usual in CBT type approaches to have these kind of vicious loops and often clinicians talk about vicious flowers um and so I in my head I'd never thought about it as being sort of more of a gendered thing Mm -hmm. um but uh I just like because I I just found it a really helpful concept to think about how tricky these sort of traps and all the different ways um things can be maintained um but I yeah I think it's if you think about the way mantra um has been developed I guess we've got to think about the bigger um the bigger perceptions of society really do influence that because you know even developing treatments and trials and things like that they'll they'll only be developed for the people that are accessing services and you know not everyone um, is accessing services in an equal way because people are holding um outdated views around um who might um you know suffer with anorexia and it is you know quite um white female uh, orientated and that needs to change um and I think if we get if we get more representative people um accessing and, and and being able to kind of be involved in um services and in treatments and in um research and development we're going to get models that are you know more representative and and, and better tailored to the needs of people yeah. um I think the thing about mantra is that it's tailorable 
Um, so in terms of, you know, and having experiences, I, and I do know the workbook's been adapted in terms of the artwork and things like that, so that it's more, you know, it's it's less girly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also having worked with different, you know, lots of different people with anorexia over the years, it's, um, I suppose, whatever the treatment you say to the person, you know, if there are bits of this treatment that really make sense, you know, we roll with them. And if there are bits that don't, let's talk about it and let's talk about why and kind of, you know, how we want to sort of adapt it together to make it fit for you. But yeah, absolutely. Men can, um, you know, I've, I've worked with men who, who um, um, in using mantra and yeah, there's no, um, but I, 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 at the same time, I think there's scope, scope to develop yeah. the model more and yeah. think about these underrepresented, underrepresented um, sort of groups of people that, that need sort of appropriate treatment. It's interesting what you were just saying about um, kind of, you know, on the development side of things, because that in itself is almost a vicious loop in that yeah. there's a stigma against let's use men as an example that men don't get eating disorders so men don't access the treatment therefore the treatment isn't developed because there's not enough men to use in studies and stuff and actually that in itself is is a vicious loop um so it's yeah it's it's really challenging in terms of that development side of things because you have to have the participants I now work in clinical trials and stuff so I know you have to have the participants to actually be able to do the study and, and to know if it's going to work so it's yeah it's, it's more than that yeah it goes all the way through and it goes to unequal sort of um allocation of funding as well over the years so you know I think historically funding would be given to teams who um who they know can deliver so but if those teams you know like are all skilled up to deliver say psychosis treatment or depression treatment then those are the models that are going to get like mm. lots of like lots of development um and I think historically both in such research and service provision eating disorders haven't been seen as um kind of as in I don't know like as as worthy of investment which mm. isn't okay but that's part of kind of the challenge that that everyone's facing in terms of um bringing things into a fair place where at least kind of some of the models have have had as much sort of research and development as kind of other areas of mental health as well um yeah but we can't fix all of this in one day (laughs) it'd be so good if we could um do you think there'll ever be or do you think there could ever there'd ever be scope for like a mantra for bulimia or binge eating disorder or the, the other eating disorders or do you think it would need to be like a new a completely new approach well do you know what like there is so um Helen Startup and Anna Lavender like developed um an emotion and social mind sort of model for um so that's again sort of the Morsley team for mm-hmm. individuals with bulimia and binge eating disorder so it's it's got lots of the feel of mantra around it so it's more but it's it's more of that like the model is more tailored around those difficulties and um that's a lovely model um so yeah I think there's loads of like lovely kind of ways that things could be progressed mm. you just need more of a gang of people that yeah. are able to do this and and more yeah so the, the clinicians the researchers and the and the the you know the service provision to um 
properly sort of evaluating everything. But yeah, I mean, they, I think there's a, a trial on, um, that was done around that too. Brilliant. And we were definitely doing it in, um, in services um, as well as a, as a model. So yeah, there's loads of lovely ways forward um, mm. with progressing sort of um, some of this stuff. Yeah. Need some funding. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I've got some questions from the listeners. Cool. Uh, so I basically just put on Twitter um, I can't remember what I put actually it was ages ago but it was some I think it was something like what would you like to know about mantra um, yeah. so somebody has asked what level of intensity is mantra, mantra and what should I expect so they'll basically put on it afterwards that saying you know they know it's going to be intense because it's even some treatment but like how like what yeah. level of intensity yeah so um, I guess just like it's it's weekly in terms of um the commitment mm-hmm. um but I suppose it can go you know if someone's got momentum you, you space it um kind of less frequently as they're, as they're getting more momentum um but I think you know I, I suppose people can um sort of take you know, it, it, it doesn't have to just be, um, I mean, people at every stage of their illness journey um, could be linking in. It's just that if, I suppose, if you were on the verge of needing more intensive input, so daycare or inpatient um, input, it would be important that that was sort of all joined up. So um, sometimes it's possible to start mantra within an inpatient unit and then continue it as you're coming out so you know there's there's kind of ways of setting the package up around that um so for for people that would need more more um additional support as well if that makes sense yeah um I hope that answers it it does does definitely um that reminded me of something I wanted to ask earlier actually was you mentioned about um BMI I mean I don't know whether it'll be like a specific BMI but I guess I did want to ask as well you know is there a certain point where this is um would be relevant to start because I know that a lot of the time you can't really engage in treatment because you're not cognitively your brain isn't kind of well enough yet to start treatment um I guess it's just about making sure that someone could have momentum to start being nourished in you know in a safe enough way um so I think um so those would be you know there there aren't any real rules about numbers or anything like that it's like it's you know can can we keep people safe and risk monitor them um and you can build up a kind of more of a comprehensive package around them if they're coming from a lower place um and also there'd be more of an understanding that they've got more of a journey so Mm -hmm. so that the package would take it would take longer yeah um but I think you know in the trials and staff it was compared against um you know SSCM and CBT which are the other sort of nice recommended treatments um and it was I suppose it when they broke the trials down um those people with more of a severe um presentation did sort of um make greater strides with mantra than than um with SSCM so I think it is quite interesting in in that way it's just really making sure that there's a team around to, yeah. to manage um yeah cool okay thank you um and then the last question um are, is which healthcare professionals are or can be trained in mantra 
Um, so in terms of the um, Health Education England training that's being rolled out at the moment, so that's um, all across adult eating disorder services. It's um, any clinicians who've got that adult specialism. So they've got their core skills in terms of eating disorder um, sort of management, be able to risk manage and, and um, kind of think about nutrition and all of the, those basic things as well. So um, we've got a whole range of people. So nurses, occupational therapists, um, psychologists of all kinds of varieties. Um, I'm going to miss people, I'm sure. I don't think I've got <laughs> anyone in my group that's a social worker. But um, And I think it, it, like they're called different clinicians, are called different things. In some teams, it might be called eating disorder um, practitioners, or and they tend to have a core kind of core professional background so that might be yeah OT um social work nurse but then they start to build additional skills um so I'm sure I'm not answering these questions comprehensively but I think <laughs> you didn't know it was um, coming I'll let you off <laughs> yeah um but we've definitely I mean it's it's really lovely um so doing the supervision groups um for the um, mantra training because it is like it's a combination of different people and all in different parts of the country yeah. and different eating disorders teams and they sort of come together and think about um cases and stuff um yeah it's really cool okay well thank you so much i honestly could chat to you for hours um yeah, that too. was so <laughs> lovely that conversation so thank you very much nikki oh it's a pleasure hannah thank you for having me <laughs> If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so be sure to subscribe. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support, or talk to someone you trust.